our love, our devotion to Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5. He says, a profound mystery. But we should love one another the way that Christ loved the church. There should be this mutual submission, this, this serving, this loving, this partnering together. And if we don't have that biblical perspective, when we get married, or if we get married, or if we think about marriage, our mentality in our marriage will be something like this. I will be the spouse, the husband, or the wife that I ought to be if and only to the degree that my spouse is the husband or the wife that he or she ought to be. Do you understand that? It's very conditional. I will be the spouse that I ought to be only if and to the degree that my spouse is the spouse that he or she ought to be. So if she loves me and respects me and and trusts me and submits to me and gives me the perfect balance of, of freedom and dependence, then I will love her and serve her and trust her and respect her and give her the perfect balance of freedom. If he washes the dishes, then I'll cook the dinner. If he cleans the bathroom, I'll clean the kitchen. If he folds the sheets and redoes the bed, then I'll make sure the couches and all their pillows. You know, it's sort of this 50-50 mentality. If she lets me go out and hang out with my friends when I feel like hanging out, then I'll let her go out and hang out with her friends. If she lets me buy my, you know, gadgets, then I'll let her buy her purse and her bags and her shoes. You know, there's a sense that if you do for me what you should do for me, I'll do for you what I should do for you. And again, that is oftentimes driven by this consumer ethic, this consumer mentality that marriage is about me. It's about my happiness. So if you make me happy by doing all the things I expect you to do for me, I'll make you happy and I'll do all the things you expect me to do for you. And that never works. That never works. Because your happiness is not the ultimate goal. Because if that is the ultimate goal, your selfishness will make you increasingly more selfish and more self-centered. And your expectation of what a happy marriage should be or what a good spouse should be will never be satisfied because you'll be constantly trying to fulfill your need and your desire. And that can really make any marriage or relationship dysfunctional. So what is marriage according to Paul? What is marriage without which it wouldn't be marriage? What defines a marriage? What makes a marriage a biblical marriage? It's like asking the question, what makes a doctor a doctor, right? It's like saying uh, a doctor is someone who wears a white coat. Is that what makes a doctor a doctor? Because I could go out and I could buy a white coat, and if I put it on, would that make me a doctor? No, it wouldn't. And maybe today you're sitting next to a doctor who's not wearing a white coat. Because they're not wearing a white coat, does that mean they're not a doctor? No, it's not the coat. And that even doesn't even answer the question, what kind of doctor are we talking about? We're assuming that this is an MD, but what about a PhD? or a JD, or a different kind of doctor. What makes a doctor a doctor without which he or she wouldn't be a doctor is like asking the same question, what makes marriage a marriage without which, without it, it wouldn't be a marriage? A lot of people say, well, marriage, what makes marriage marriage is sex and romance. Come on, you got to have that. that your, your, your spouse has to be sexy, attractive. You've got to be, they've got to appeal to, to your senses, 
Some people will say, no, marriage is about starting a family, building a home, having children, raising a child. That's the purpose of marriage. That's the essence of marriage. And other people will say, no, marriage is it's just affection. If two people have an, an attraction for each other, they should get married. Is that what makes marriage a marriage? Affection, sex, family? Well, the answer to that question is all three of those things should be a part of every marriage. But we would be naive to assume that those are the things that make marriage what it is. Because let me turn it another way. If marriage is simply affection, we don't need to get married. Just go out and get a pet. Right? A dog will be affectionate with you more than a spouse any day of the week. I guarantee it. All right? You come home from work and that dog is waiting for you every single day at the top of the steps, wagging its tongue, jump on your lap every single time, lick your cheeks, give you kisses, always there for you, snap, boom, they're there. They will give you all the affection you could ever want. So if that's really what it's about, we don't need marriage, we just need dogs, right? Well, maybe it's, uh, then that's not the right answer. Maybe it's family, starting a family, reproducing, multiply and fill the earth. That's the essence of marriage, so that we can get married and have families and have kids. Well, rabbits do a much better job of that than we do. Put any two rabbits together and boom, boom, family, family, family. I mean, but they don't get married, right? So it can't just be about that either. Or maybe it's sex. Oh, you, know, it's, you know, you get married so you can have sex, so your physical needs can be met. Let me be the first to tell you, if you haven't heard this already, that when you get married, you don't have sex all the time, okay? You do a lot of other things too, okay? Uh, you talk a lot. You fight a lot. You make decisions a lot. You, you cook and clean a lot. You do work a lot. You plan a lot. I mean, there are a lot of things that you do that don't involve or go anywhere near the bedroom, So it can't just be about that either. And the truth is, after a, after a certain amount of time, that desire, that libido, begins to fade. And so what happens then? Now we can't have sex anymore, so shouldn't be married. No. So it can't be about that either. Although the sex and the family and the affection, all those things are important, they should be a part of every marriage, those are not the essential things that make a marriage what a marriage should be, without which it wouldn't be a marriage if it wasn't there. What are the essential qualities? What is the, the mystery that Paul talks about? Well, the first thing is this. A marriage is essentially a promise. A promise that you make to someone. On a wedding day, I love performing weddings. I, I love, for, for, for multiple reasons, Uh, first of all, it's the best view in the church or the house, wherever you are. Like, I get to stand right front and center. And when the bride, you know, appears at the other end of the, of the hall, I am the first one, and, and, the, and the husband too, to, to lock eyes with her. In, in some ways, I'm kind of stealing that moment because they're kind of looking at each other. And they're like, oh, we're about to get married. And I'm kind of like in there too. Like, yeah, you know. I get that view. I love that part. Um, And then, and then they come to the front and we go through the, the motions, but, you know, really the most powerful part are the vows. It's the promise that they make to each other. I'll love you no matter what, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Those are the traditional vows. Some people write their own vows or they come up with their own vows, but essentially what they're saying is, I promise to love you forever. I promise to be here for you 10 years from now, 
20 years from now, 30 years from now. I'm not going anywhere. I promise to serve you and protect you and uphold you and respect you. Even if you hurt my feelings, even if you disagree with me, even if you're not a good cook or you don't make enough money or you're not what Hollywood says you should be, a vow, a promise is saying, I'm making a future appointment with you that will never be broken. We call them vows. You can call it a promise. The biblical language is covenant. You're making a covenant. That is the essence of a marriage. It's a promise. You see, the affection, it fades. It comes and goes. It comes in and out. Ask any married couple. There are days when you're just like, oh, clicking on, 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 on all pistons, and you just really love being around each other, and you can't, oh, you can't take my hands off of you. And then there are other days where you're just kind of like cold shoulder, like, oh, you know, I, I'm going to go run some errands. I've got to get away from you. And, you. and you need your space. Oh, you should go off on a trip with your friends. You know, I just, you know, you just don't want to be around them. Sometimes that affection, it comes and goes. But the vow says, even when the affection is not there, I love you. It can't be about the sex because you're not having it all the time. And sometimes you're not in the mood or sometimes you're too tired. But the promise says, even if we're not having sex right now, I belong to you totally, completely, fully. And the family, the kids, I mean, eventually the kids, I mean, you can have kids. And if that's all it is, one day they grow up and they leave you. And when they go off to college and they go and become their own adults, does your marriage dissolve and fall apart? Well, if you built it on your kids, it will. But if you build it on a promise, see, whether we have kids or not, whether our kids are good or not, whether they live with us forever or leave the house sooner than we expected, we will be together. I will be with you. Whether or not you are with me, Paul is saying a marriage is about loving and serving someone and being the spouse whether or not they are the spouse they should be. Not if and only to the degree that they should be, but whether or not they love you, whether or not they serve you, whether or not they protect you or respect you. And the reason why I can love you in that way is because God loved me even when I was unlovable. God didn't love me because I was perfect. God loved me because he, in his great love for me, was able to take me despite all my sin and all my shame and all my brokenness and still uphold me and prize me. And therefore, because God can love me in that way and God can forgive me in that way and God can give his only begotten son to me in that way, I can do that for my spouse. It's a promise. It's a commitment. When everything falls apart, when everything fades away, when everything blows up in your face, the promise means there is no doubt, no shadow of a doubt that your spouse will be with you. And unfortunately, the consumer mindset doesn't believe in that kind of promise. We sign prenuptial agreements. We file for divorce. We annul marriages all the time, every day. Were those really marriages? Well, I think they were trying to be, but without that commitment, it couldn't truly be. Otherwise, it's just an arrangement. Let's just live together. Let's sign the paperwork so we can file our taxes together. Let's have kids together. Let's buy a house together. 
oh, it's not working out, okay, let's just, you take your half and I'll take my half. The arrangement worked for a while, but no longer does, and you go your own way, and that was not the biblical view. That's not what Christ wanted. That's not what Paul was speaking of. Prenuptial agreement is not the language of love. It doesn't mean what's yours is yours and what's mine is mine. The promise means everything that I have belongs to you and everything you have belongs to me. It's a covenant. It's a vow. It's a promise. Without that, it is not a marriage. It's just a friendship. It's just a a partnership. It's just an arrangement. It's just cohabitation. It's just you do your job, I do my job, and we'll do some things together, and that's it. And that might make you happy and satisfied for a while, but there's no security in that. There is no certainty. There is no trust. That can't truly be love because love is, by definition, selfless. It's to say, even if I don't get anything out of this, I give you everything I have. And that is countercultural. It is worldly. It is modern. But the Bible says you can do that because Christ has done it for you. That is the biblical perspective. So what is marriage? Marriage is a promise, but it's also another thing. It's also a oneness. Paul says um, that each one of you must love your wife as he loves himself. There should be no differentiation. It's not yours and mine, or this is my stuff and that's your stuff, and I'll love you in this way, but I'll love my... No, it's you love one another as you love yourselves. It's a oneness. Paul also quotes from Genesis 2.24, when Adam first sees Eve, he says, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. When God gives Adam Eve at the beginning of creation, and they're getting married together, and they're making this covenant, this promise, Adam is essentially saying, we are now one. If you were to ask Adam, do you love Eve? He would say, love Eve? I am Eve. We're one. We're together. We're, we're, we're the same. There is no separation. It's a oneness. Now, what does that mean? Okay, Eugene, that sounds theological. That sounds, you know, really uh, fundamental. Or, or phil- What does it mean practically? It means this. You're best friends. You're best friends. I talked about this last week. There's no one who knows you better. There's no one who can, who can look through you and know you just the way you are and still trust you and love you and serve you. Your best friend. There are no secrets. There are no skeletons in the closet. There is nothing to hide. If you are best friends, you can be totally vulnerable together and therefore you can take off your clothes in front of each other and sleep together and have sex because there is no shame. It's oneness. It's friendship. It's companion. It's koinonia. Without this, it's not a marriage. It's just a one-night stand, a sexual partner, an arrangement. There must be a deep oneness, a deep friendship. If your spouse is not your best friend, then go start working on making your spouse your best friend. If the person you're thinking about marrying is not your best friend, you better make sure they become your best friend fast. It's about oneness. It's this oneness. So marriage is a promise. It's a oneness. It's this 
deep friendship, this deep trust, this deep accountability. My wife is the only one who knows me totally and fully. And, not, and I'm not afraid to tell her anything I've ever done or any, anything I've ever thought or anything that I'm thinking. And she might tell me I'm stupid, but she's telling me that I'm stupid because she loves me and she says, don't think about that anymore, get your mind straight. But I don't have to worry that she's telling me I'm stupid because I'm really stupid. No, she's telling me because I'm being stupid, not because I'm stupid. Do you get what I'm saying? I don't have to pretend. I don't have to act like I know what I'm doing. I don't have to be confident when I'm not. I can be insecure. I can be scared. I can be ashamed. I can be vulnerable in front of my wife. And she won't think, oh my gosh, you're such a loser. No. She will love me up to the man that I need to be. She will serve me and lift me and respect me and protect me. But that's only because we are best friends. We're best friends. And I always tease her. Sometimes she says, yeah, Eugene, you know, ever since we've had kids, like, we don't have friends anymore, you know? It's like, we're, you know, we got no social life. And I'm like, what you talking about? I'm your best friend. I'm right here. You don't need to go anywhere. I'm right here. I am your social life, you know? And then she goes, you know, and turns on the TV. <laughs> she drowns me out. But, you know, I mean, that's what it's all about, really. We're best friends. We are each other's social life. That's what it's meant to be. Yeah, it'd be nice to go hang out with some guys. It'd be nice to, for her to go out and hang out with some girlfriends. Those are nice things to do, but the most important thing and where we get our deepest fulfillment is by spending time together, by being one, by being best friends. So marriage is a promise, it's a vow, it's a covenant, it's a commitment. Marriage is also a deep oneness, a companionship, a friendship, a partnership. It's koinonia. And lastly, this is the last thing, marriage, it should be the most high-priority human relationship in your life. Next to God, your spouse should be the most important person, even more than your parents. And this is something that's hard for a lot of newlyweds to understand because all their lives they've loved their parents the most or maybe their siblings. Or after you have kids, you have to love your spouse more than you love your own children. The best gift you can give your children is a healthy marriage. And a healthy marriage is loving your spouse above all others. You put your children first, then that marriage will start to crack apart. And then what happens when the children leave? You've got nothing left with your partner. So it is the highest priority. There is no one more important in this world, not your boss, not your friend, not a, a family member, but your spouse. And those of you that are not married yet need to understand this. As you go, this is what it means to leave and cleave. I recently uh, got a, a phone call from uh, someone who used to come to our church and struggling with a, a decision uh, that he and his wife are trying to make because their parents are trying to enforce their will on where they should live. And the parents are very traditional Asian and they're saying, well, you know, we are the priority. You listen to us first. And if not, you're being disobedient children. And so this guy was like, Eugene, I don't know what to do. I don't, and I said, you know what you need to do is you need to tell your parents that you respect them, but they can't force you and your wife to do something that's creating tension and friction between you. You are no longer the middleman. You are no longer the messenger. When they speak to you, they speak to your wife. When you speak to them, they're listening to you and your wife. Because marriage exalts your spouse to the highest priority in your life. 
No one compares, no one competes on the human level next to God. And the reason why is because your marriage and your spouse has incredible power over who you are. It's a power that can reprogram your self-image and recreate your identity and your being. Let me just give you an example of this. If everything in your life is going bad, everything is falling apart, you're failing and you're miserable and everything else in life, but your marriage is strong, you'll be strong. If everything in this life is going well, you're being promoted, you're making more money than you've ever made and everything is succeeding and, and turning into gold at the touch of your hand, but your marriage is weak, then you'll be weak. There's no way around it. Something's got to give. I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again. When my wife and I go out shopping for clothes, right? And I was like, you know, I'm going to try that shirt on. That shirt, I think it's going to look good on me, and I don't really know, so I put it on. I say, what do you think? Doesn't this look good? And I'm all excited to show her this shirt, come out of the, the dressing room. Hey, look at this. Look at, it just highlights my features. I mean, come on, this color. And if she's like, no, it doesn't, no, it doesn't really work for me. And then I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> all of a sudden, it just doesn't look good anymore. I just take it off. And then if there's a shirt that she finds, she goes, oh, Eugene, I really want you to try this on. I think it'd look great on you. And I'm like, oh, my, are you serious? She's like, come on, please. Okay, I put it on. I come out of the dressing room. I'm like, come on. Tell me the truth. She's like, I love it. This looks great. <laughs> you know, like the power of her words. I mean, there's this power. That's just, a, that's just one example, an illustration of the power that we have. And we're just talking about clothes. We're just talking about clothes. What about character? What about purpose? What about career? What about parenting? What about faith and devotion? When we speak into each other's lives in these areas, there's great power. And so the reason why it must be a high priority is because if we underestimate it, that power, it'll corrupt, it'll break, it'll make a relationship dysfunctional just like that. So we're no longer supposed to be looking for marriage with a consumer mindset, right? Because even if you were, even if we were, and even from a biblical perspective, the reality, the truth is, it's not easy to find the right person. I've heard a lot of people come to me, whether they're, whether they're dating or married, and they're like, you know, this relationship is hard. Our marriage is hard work. It should just come easily, but we're always fighting and arguing. We can't get along. Why is it so hard? It should be easy. It should come natural. And I always say, Why? Why should it be easy? Because Hollywood makes it look easy? Because the romance novels make it look easy and natural? I mean, I I love sports, but is baseball easy? I love music, but is playing the cello easy? If I told Yo-Yo Ma, hey, I love music, playing the cello must be easy, huh? He would look at me with disgust and say, I've committed my entire life to this instrument. Don't tell me it's easy. In the same way, marriage and love, it's not easy. You have to devote your entire life to it. You have to sacrifice for it. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to be intentional. It doesn't just come easy. It does on the screen, on the movie screen. But in real life, it takes practice, it takes work, it takes commitment. And most of the time, if not all of the time, we marry the wrong person. Huh? What? What did Eugene just say? Most of the time, if not all of the time, we have married the wrong person. What does that mean? Well, I want to use a quote 
from a, a, a law divinity professor. And then I want to go back to what Paul said in Ephesians 5. And the quote is this. This is a, a, a divinity professor at Duke University. He writes, Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. Okay, marriage is to make me happy, make me whole. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. If I date enough people, if I go to enough places, if I, you know, eventually I'll find the right guy, the right girl, and he or she will make me whole and happy. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Who wrote this? We never know whom we marry. Did you catch that? We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. I promise you, it happens. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we've entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. In other words, it's not only saying that you've married the wrong person because they're not who you think you are, but you're not who you think you are. And marriage being the incredibly powerful thing that it is, it transforms every person who enters into it. That person is changing. That person is evolving. That person is being reprogrammed and remastered. Because marriage has that kind of power and that kind of influence. But what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 is this. Will that journey of pain and frustration and coming of age and learning who you are and learning who your spouse is, will that lead to a better you? Because remember, the reflection of marriage is our relationship with Christ. And therefore, our marriage is not to make us happy and whole, but it's to make us holy instead. Marriage is the matrix that God uses to make us more loving, more patient, more kind, more gentle, more true. And God has given us this gift in our spouses to accelerate that program, to be a catalyst in our lives. so that we no longer are these independent, selfish, prideful people, but that as we enter into this institution, this partnership, this journey, we are transformed. And so from a biblical perspective, when you get married to someone, you shouldn't be so happy about who they are today. You should be more happy about who they will be tomorrow. Because God is going to allow your marriage, He's going to use your marriage to develop your spouse into someone who's more like Christ. We're not looking for a perfect, sculpted person when we're thinking about who should I marry. No, you're looking for a block of rock. And as you commit to them in marriage... Your marriage is what chisels away all of the surrounding pieces so that what's within, the beauty that's within is revealed. Because when Christ loved the church, he did not love the church because it was beautiful and radiant. The church was sinful. 
It was broken. It was independent. But Christ, by loving the church, would wash it and cleanse it and make it whole. And in the same way, in our marriage, we don't marry that person because they appear to be perfect, because really they aren't. We make them holy. As we journey together on this road to Christ likeness, if it is a reflection on the human level of our relationship with God, then ultimately the relationship is meant to make us more like Christ. It is a journey of holiness. And so look at your spouse today and say, I'm in love with you today, but I'm more in love with who you're going to be tomorrow. I love you today, but I'm more in love with who you're going to become in 10 years, in 15 years, when we're old and gray. Because our eyes are not on ourselves and our eyes are not on each other. Our eyes are on the cross. And we're going there together. And I will keep you close to me and you will keep me close to you and we will keep each other on that road. And if that is the essence of marriage, even when the sex and the romance fades, even when the kids leave, even when the affection is not what it used to be like when you first met, that won't be the basis of keeping it together. In fact, if the, if the, if the primary focus of the marriage is to be a reflection of our relationship with God, then all of those things will actually be enhanced. It'll be icing on the cake and not the other way around. But if we put all of those other things first, when they fade and pass away, and they will, there will be very little left to hold the marriage together. But when it's built on a commitment to being in a relationship and a path journey toward God, then no matter what fades away, the marriage will always be vital and healthy and whole. And it's important for all of us who are married to remember that and all of you who are not yet married to learn that. So just two quick um, practical points before we close up. Who should I get married to? Eugene, I'm single. I want to get married someday. Who should I be looking for? If you tell me that we're going to meet the wrong person and it's almost, then, you know, I mean, what do I need to do here? How do I need to go about this? Well, first things first. If marriage is a promise and a commitment, then you need to make sure that the person you're hoping to get married to is committed to the same things you are. Okay? You cannot be committed to each other if you're not committed to the same things. Do you understand that? For instance, you should be looking for a Christian, okay? Don't say, oh, well, if I date her long enough, she'll start coming to church, and then I can, like, take her on a mission strip or retreat, and then she'll give her life to Christ, and then we'll get married. It'll be perfect. No, 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 no. That's selfish, okay? You have to be committed to the same things. Every Christian will tell you you should marry other Christians. Jews will tell you marry other Jews. Catholics will say marry a Catholic. Because it's so incredibly practically true. If you're not committed to the most important thing in your lives together, then at best, you'll be superficial friends or you're not really committed to Christ. You're not really committed to your faith. And so you both have to be committed to that. If marriage is a covenant, a promise, then you need to be committed to the same things. And so off the bat, you should be looking for someone who's committed 
to what you believe in, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or else, you're either compromising your relationship with Christ and saying, well, he's really, God is really not that important to me. Falling in love with this person is more important. Or Christ is more important, but this person will never be your best friend because they'll never be able to share the most important thing in your life. Or at least until they do, they won't be able to really be your best friend. They won't really know why you live the way you live and think the way you think until they understand that Christ is central to your heart. So who should you be looking for? Look for other people committed to that path of living the gospel on their lives, other Christians, other brothers and sisters in the faith. The church is a wonderful place to meet people. I know sometimes people say, oh, yeah, sometimes I hate going to church. I just feel like it's just a place for singles to meet each other. Well, this is the best place to do that, all right? It's better than going out some other place where you're going to, it's questionable, okay? This is the best place. In fact, I encourage that. Recently, our church was part of a a joint church speed dating event. Some people are like, what? That's weird. Why? Is that a ministry? Yeah, you better believe it. Good Christians meeting each other, falling in love, getting married, yeah. You know, maybe like your, your rib is in another church somewhere. You just need to go find them, you know. Like, you got you to reconnect that way. Maybe not here. That's fine. So you should be looking for that. And where are your lives going? Where are your lives going? Are you committed to the same purposes, to the same ends? How do you want to live out your faith? What does that mean? I want to live my life simply. Oh, but I want to live extravagantly. Okay, we really need to figure this out before we get married. I want to live in a suburb. I want to live in the inner city. In fact, I want to live in a third world city. You need to talk about that. You know, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to do this with what God has given me. I want to pursue this path. Talk about those things. Where are you going together? I'm not saying it's impossible to work it out, but compatibility, I mean, God has given you common sense and logic to use that to say, hey, we're going in the same direction. And if we're not, then keep going in the direction that God is leading you and look around at the other people who are going in the same direction. And it could be that they are the ones that God has brought into your life to consider marriage with. If you're going in different directions, accept accept it as God's will. There are other fish in the sea. There's like four billion other fish in the sea, okay? Look, that's not right. Maybe like two billion. Half of them are unmarriable, okay? There's a lot. Okay, think about it in that way. Be committed to each other. Look for someone who's going in the same direction that you are. And don't just look at who they are today. Look at who Christ wants them to become because they will change. So don't just be impressed with, you know, the way they present themselves on the spot or in this season. You need to be able to look past all of that and find the inner beauty and the holiness that that person holds. The person that Christ is forming that person into. And if you're excited about being a part of that formation process, then maybe you're being called to marry that person. But if you don't want to be a part of that process, find somebody who you're excited about who they're becoming tomorrow. And you want to be a part of that process. And they want to be a part of your process. 
And then you will go through pain and anger and dysfunction and, and brokenness and hurt and sin. All of those things will exist in your marriage, but you will be pointing your marriage toward holiness. And happiness, wholeness, children, sex, affection, all those things will come along with it. It's part of the package. So let us fix our eyes. Let us just taste a foretaste, a glimpse of what God has in store for all of eternity, not just for the moment. It's not just for our happiness and wholeness. It's for our holiness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for all of the ways in which uh, you speak into our lives. Lord, the wonderful people that you have given us to love and to care for and to serve and maybe even marry or be married to today. Lord, we ask for grace upon grace as we continue this journey of loving one another, what it means to truly be brothers and sisters in Christ, which is what we are before we're anything else to each other. Help us to understand what it means to love one another more than ourselves. Lord, I pray for those who are married in our church, in our community. I pray that you continue to strengthen those marriages, those relationships that you would give them the courage to stand up and work through the difficulties and the challenges that they're facing in your name. Lord, I pray that you bless them with joy, with hope, with peace, with love, affection, and romance, with one mind and one heart, making them one soul, one flesh. Lord God, would you fill their homes, their marriages, and their families with this incredible blessing that only you can give. And I pray for all my single brothers and sisters here, Lord God, I pray, Lord, that as they continue to await that day when you will reveal to them their spouse, their lover, their friend, Lord, that they would be preparing their lives and their hearts now and that they would be trusting you each and every day that you are the great giver of every good gift and that you will not withhold, you will not deprive, but that you will lavishly give and offer the best for each and every one of your children. And so, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here who are not yet married, who are in that season of singleness, Lord, would you be preparing them? Would you be blessing them and filling them with full joy and full contentment that comes in you and you alone? May they find it in you and you alone. Lord, we thank you that we can work this out together as a community of faith. We thank you that we can learn together, we can struggle together, we can even fail together but that you are the head of this body. And as we learn daily what it means to live this out in truth, in grace, Lord, bless us, enable us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.